0: Um, Okay, so the next four weeks uh, of adult ed, um, everything up until the getaway, uh, we're going to spend those four weeks um, looking at this book. Uh, This came out a couple years ago. Um, It's called The Whole Christ. It's by Sinclair Ferguson. Um, The subtitle is Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance, Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters, and I guess my goal today is... We want to know what all of those words mean uh, by the end of today. Uh, This this is about the law and gospel. Um, This is about how we relate to the law, having been set free from the law. Um, How do we relate to it? And so for that reason, one of the reasons I think Rick wanted to do this now is that it's a really good follow-on from the sermon series that we just had in Deuteronomy um, and from our time reading Psalm 119, because we're always asking these questions. Slides back here that I'm kind of blocking. Um, You know, all throughout Psalm 119, the psalmist is delighting in the law, um, running to the law, saying, It was good that I was afflicted because it drove me to the law. Um, And so the law is a source of delight um, for the psalmist. And that's a hard thing for us to get our minds around. Uh, We think of the law as a constraint, uh, we think of it as a burden, um, something that we don't measure up to and makes us feel guilty. so we always have this question, can we really delight um, in the law? And that's what this book uh, is, is about. Um, the main point of it, I'll just tell now, um, is that um, Ferguson is going to argue um, that the remedy for sin um, is neither to observe the law more strictly nor to get rid of it. Um, in fact, at the end of the day, um, The primary thing isn't our relationship to the law at all. The primary thing is our relationship to God. Um, The remedy for sin is not going to be how we relate to the law. It's going to be how we relate to Christ. Um, So the way he approaches this, I said, uh, why the marrow controversy still matters. This actually starts off with um, several chapters of a historical study of a controversy that took place in the 18th century in Scotland. now, it's not, he, he says in the book, um, it's not a study of that controversy. Um, it's not a study of the theology of any of the particular people um, that, were, um, that were taking part in that. Uh, he uses a classical music reference to explain. He says, you know, you might think of this as variations on the themes of the Merrow controversy. Um, so he uses it as a, a launching pad, you know, from which to talk about how the law and gospel relate. Um, but, it's still good to look at this history and to look at what the marrow controversy was, um, and that's what we're gonna do today. Uh, I'm gonna do the historical bit, um, and then the next three weeks, Rick will go from there and, and talk, talk through the theological parts. So, the marrow controversy. It has to do uh, with a controversy that erupted related to this book. It's called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Uh, and let me, let me actually read um, not all of what's up there, that's a bad place to stand. Um, not all of what's up there. Um, but uh, the text up there gives you some sense of how the controversy played out. So it's the Marrow of Modern Divinity in two parts. Um, you can see uh, down below it says there's, it's a dialogue. It's set up as being kind of like a Socratic dialogue, but there's four players. There's an evangelist, a minister of the gospel, uh, gnomist, a legalist. There's Antinomist, an antinomian, meaning someone who rejects the law, says the law has nothing to do with us. Um, and Neophytus, a young Christian. So most of it takes place between this young Christian and his pastor, the evangelist. Um, and then there's these, these two other characters, uh, a legalist and an antinomian you know, interjecting here and there. Um, now beneath that, this, so this thing originally was published by Edward Fisher we think. It only had the initials EF, but scholars think it was this guy, Edward Fisher. Um, it was published in 1645 and 1649, so in London. So this is right about the time the Westminster Confession of Faith is, is being hashed out. That's when it was published, but if you look at the bottom here, you can see this edition is from 1830. And it includes notes by that eminent and faithful servant of Jesus Christ, Mr. Thomas Boston, late minister of the gospel at Ettrick, and we're gonna talk about Thomas Boston today. He's a major player in this controversy. To which is added the 12 queries which were proposed to the 12 men by the commission of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1721 with the men 's answers to said queries. Um, so this is exciting. This is, this is a controversy that involves Presbyterian polity. Uh, this thing erupted into what Actually, if you've, if you've been around Presbyterian polity, uh, if you've been to a Presbytery meeting, if you've been to General Assembly, I, I know most of you haven't. Um, but all of this actually sounds very familiar. This is how Presbyterians um, fight with each other, um, is they have committees and they have queries. Um, so most of this is going to take place uh, in the 1720s. Um, that's when Thomas Boston is alive. Uh, that's when uh, this, this controversy erupts uh, in the Church of Scotland. So that's, you know, 80 years after the publication of this thing. So, all right, so the story begins um, in a little town called Auchterarder. That's as close as I can get to pronouncing that correctly. Octorotter, um, Scotland. It's about 45, 45 miles to the northwest of Edinburgh. Um, the, most, the thing that it's most famous for today is this. Um, this is the Glen Eagles Hotel. It's connected to the Glen Eagles uh, Golf Club. If you're a golf fan, you might know the Ryder Cup uh, was played there in in 2014. It hosted a G8 summit uh, in 2005, so it's this very ritzy place. Um, But long ago, before it was famous for that, it was just this little town, uh, like I said, 45 miles to the northwest of Edinburgh. And the story starts there because in 1717, um, the presbytery uh, of the Church of Scotland in Octorotter had developed this thing that came to be known as the Octorotter Creed, okay? It was their own um, addendum. I mean, this was Church of Scotland. These were all Westminster Confession of uh, Faith-believing Presbyterians, um, but they had added... Um, this, this little thing that they called the Akhtarader Creed. Um, and in 1717, uh, a young man named William Craig uh, was being examined for ordination. Um, this is still how it works today. You know, a minister uh, or a candidate for the ministry um, is examined for ordination by, by his presbytery. Um, and he has to go through all these trials, they're called. Uh, that's what they feel like. Um, most of them are written, but then eventually you're sitting in front of a committee asking, uh, answering questions orally, and then in front of the whole presbytery answering questions orally. And during William Craig's ordination exam, he was asked to uh, say whether or not he agreed with this statement, which was from the Akhara creed. Um, okay, so this is their creed, so they're looking for him to say, yes, I agree with this. Um, the statement is, it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ. So I'll pause and let you think, what would you say? The first thing you might say is, could you repeat the question? Because that's really poorly worded. Um, What that says is, um, it is not good teaching to teach that we have to leave our sin behind uh, that we have to clean ourselves up, that we have to repent, that we have to forsake sin, before we can come to Christ. Okay, so this creed is saying that you can come to Christ without having forsaken your sin.
1: Are we I-
0: this is about conversion. Okay, yep. every- this is about conversion. Yep. Yeah, this is yeah yeah. So this is this is specifically referring to conversion, and that's going to be important because this is going to pertain to, uh, to whom can you present the gospel? How does evangelism work? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, having given you a minute to think about how you would answer. Um, Craig, probably knowing where he was, originally said, yeah, okay, great. Um, in, his, in his written exams, he signed his name. He said, I agree with that. Um, but then he came back and said, you know, I've had some second thoughts. I'm not so sure about this. I need to qualify my position a little bit. Um, and partially because of, you know, it sounds like partially because of his, uh, his lack of confidence, he kind of hesitated and stammered and wasn't really sure of himself, and partially because, in the end, he said, I'm, I'm really not sure I can agree with that. Um, when he did that, the Presbytery revoked his license to preach the gospel and, and rejected him for ordination. Um, that might have been the end of the story, um but in Presbyterian polity, there's an appeals process. Um, this decision was appealed to the General Assembly, um, and at the General Assembly uh, in 1717, um, the General Assembly said, no, that Presbytery was wrong. There is, there, that statement is problematic. Uh, they shouldn't have revoked his license. So they cited the Presbytery. They ordered them to reinstate uh, the, the, the license. They basically rejected So basically, the Presbytery was saying, no, you do have to forsake sin. You do have to repent of your sin before you can come to Christ. Okay? Now, that might have been the end of the matter. Except this is where Thomas Boston comes into the story. Um, So Thomas Boston was a minister in the Church of Scotland. And here's what happened, and this is still what happens today, Uh, at Presbytery or at General Assembly, there are these debates, right? They get contentious, and and there's some people who are arguing publicly, right? Actually standing up and saying things, and then the decision gets made and all that. And then there are all these side conversations, right? Because everybody, like even the people that don't stand up and say things publicly, everybody's got an opinion, right? Everybody has some sense of how it should have gone, and what they would have said, and why they, th- they think the debate, you know, didn't focus on the right things, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, Thomas Boston uh, had one of these side conversations. 17 years earlier, um, on a normal pastoral visit, he had been happening to visit somebody, and he saw this book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, which like I said, had been published in 1645. Um, He happened to see it. It caught his eye. He pulled it off the shelf. He read a few pages. He was intrigued. He asked if he could borrow it. Um, He took it home. Um, It made a big impression on it. He really liked it. But he didn't really think anything of it until 1717, until he was there for this debate. And he thought back on this book, and he had a side conversation with his friend, uh, John Drummond, another minister. He said, you know, that creed, that Oxford Creed, it's poorly worded, he thought so too. Um, But I think there's something to it. I think that might be right. Um, And this book, The Mirror of Modern Divinity, uh, lays that out. Um, and explains explains why. Well, he and his friend, uh, John Drummond, decided that they needed to get this book back into circulation. Um, and so they had it reprinted. They found a publisher. Um, the publisher actually wrote a preface. It got republished in 1718. Um, and at that point, it caught the attention of the whole denomination. Um, and it actually started coming back up. Um, in 17. Okay, so he reprints it in 1718. In 1719, they had a committee. This was a standing committee called the Committee for Purity of Doctrine. Um, And that committee was instructed to examine the marrow of modern divinity. Take a look at this. See what you think about it. They came back a year later in 1720 uh, and condemned it. Um, Basically for the same reason. Again, this thing is teaching... Uh, that you do not have to forsake sin, you do not have to repent before coming to Christ. They condemned that. Um, a year later, Thomas Boston uh, published an annotated version of the Merrill. Remember how that that title page we saw said it includes the notes of Thomas Boston. So this is when he writes those in 1721, and he and 12, or excuse me, he and 11 others. There were 12 total. Um, he and 11 others filed a petition. Um, in support of it, uh, basically saying the General Assembly is wrong. Shouldn't have condemned this book. Um, that's when those queries were put to them. Basically, he got, them, he got those 12 people into the position where they were being uh, questioned and examined uh, by the General Assembly uh, as to the soundness of their theology. Um, and in 1722, the General, General Assembly uh, rebuked them as well. Um, they didn't kick them out. They didn't force any of them to leave. Um, As it happened within 10 years, a completely different matter arose uh, that did split the denomination, and most of them did leave um, and made the Mero of modern divinity part of their, not their constitution, but they they were all clearly in line with with this thing. Um, So that's that's the controversy. Um, that's, That's what erupted. Um, that's, that's what happened. Um, now, the question is, why does this matter? Uh, why, does this, why does this matter for us, uh, in, in particular? Uh, a lot of this sounds, like I said, this is just the way Presbyterians fight uh, about things. Um, why, should we, why should we care about this? So, and this is, this is what Ferguson's book is about. What's at stake here? What's at stake in this statement? Um, it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ. Um, Now, the the reason that the General Assembly rejected this, um, I guess on three separate occasions, if I was counting right, at least two, um, was that they found that this statement made the error of antinomianism. Um, In other words, they felt that this statement was saying that the law really has no place uh, in the life of a Christian, Um, that it is not important to conform our lives to the law, that we can have salvation, right, that we can have a part in Christ um, without uh, repenting, uh, without um, uh, any adherence uh, to the law. Um, They held instead to a view that's known as neo nomianism I haven't heard this term used anywhere else except for this, um, this, this debate. Um, it's not quite the same as legalism. It's not quite the same um, as saying you know, that salvation is by works, that salvation comes through adherence to the Old Testament law. But they felt that the Old Testament law had been replaced by a new law of the gospel which required, instead of adherence to the Ten Commandments, um, it required faith and repentance before salvation can be offered. Um, that's why this is about conversion, it, before salvation can be offered um, at all. Um, so Boston and the Merriman thought that this was much more than a technical error. One thing that Boston wrote uh, in a letter, he said the gospel doctrine has got a root stroke uh, by the condemning of that bo- book. He thought that the gospel itself uh, was at stake. Yeah? Yeah. Right, so this is... Or,
1: so,
0: you know, or, I don't know. Yeah, so this is, this is why the, the neo-nomianism part is, is important. That it's, it, it wouldn't be fair to, to call them legalists who would say, you know, you must leave your sin behind entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're looking for repentance. They're looking for faith before you can go to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, They're looking for um, some sign that you recognize that your life is sinful, that it doesn't adhere to the law, um, before uh, you can go uh, to Jesus and take hold of him.
1: to or why you know what like, before they run to Jesus you know what I mean yeah, like I, yeah. I feel like sometimes there are people that are maybe in different places in terms of their like knowledge of what is the go- like what does the gospel mean and, and
0: it's a good it's a good question um, they were a lot clearer on the implications of this debate for what the minister should be doing okay. so in other words to whom should you be preaching the gospel and to whom should you be offering? You know, to whom should you be saying, Christ's death is for you? Uh, okay. I know less about how they would have thought about the other side of that. Yeah. You know, how important the understanding of the hearer yeah. uh, would, would be. That, that's helpful. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Jeremy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like in the modern context, I mean, forsake sin wouldn't make any sense at all to most people. You have to start with, like, so what does sin mean? Right, and that would not have been a problem for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Right, so the question becomes, you know, to whom can the offer of salvation be made? Um, Does John 3.16 mean that the gospel can be proclaimed to all the world, right, for God so loved the world? Who is that? Uh, or are there limits on this? Um, I do want to be clear, you know, the men are not teaching um, universal atonement um, or uh, what's called Arminianism. So universal atonement would mean that everybody is saved, right? That's not what they're teaching. Um, neither are they teaching that everybody is able to freely choose salvation. And so at the end of the day, the determining factor in whether someone is saved or not uh, is their choice, right, as though they have the deciding vote. Um, these guys, I mean, everybody taking part in this controversy, like I said, they all uh, subscribed to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, they were all very clear um, on justification by faith, uh, you, know, the, you know, on predestination, you know, on everything contained uh, in, in Westminster. What they were insisting on um, is that grace is free, that grace has to be free. Um, that there can't be any preconditions to it whatsoever. Um, They were insisting that salvation is found in Christ and not in Christ's benefits, and I'll explain what what I mean by that in a second. But this is is a big part of it, is that they were refusing to separate Christ from any of the benefits that we have in Christ, including repentance, including faith. Um, Yeah, and so their insistence is that there are absolutely no preconditions for coming to Christ whatsoever. Um, it might be helpful. This is what Ferguson uh, does. Um, he tries to summarize the view of these neonomians, uh, as they're called, um, with the following syllogism. Now, this, this is not anything that they ever wrote down themselves. This is Ferguson's summary of it, um, but it's just helpful for sort of understanding what it was that they were saying. So, the major premise the grace of God saves the elect. Okay. That's, that's just standard Westminster Confession statement, right? If you say, you know, for whom are the benefits? And say, well, they're for the elect. That's, that's clear. The minor premise would be the elect are known by the forsaking of sin. How can you tell who the elect are? They've forsaken their sin. They repent. And so the conclusion that they were drawing is that grace is given to those who forsake sin. Um, the problem with that, I'm going to skip some of this because we're short on time this morning. Um, I'm going to skip the Venn diagram bit, unfortunately. Um, the problem with this is that it's confusing the fruit of salvation with a condition for salvation. It's saying, because we know the elect by their repentance, therefore repentance is what makes you one of the elect. Right? Instead of saying, Repentance is one of the fruits that derives from our part in Christ, that derives from um, being elected. Um, so at stake, you know, is, is, is how do we understand in Acts 1630 um, when the apostles are asked what, mu- asked, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Um, what's at stake is what does that mean? What does it mean to say to somebody that what you have to do to be saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus? This is what they're trying to tease out. Um, Ferguson winds up uh, this this section of his book. Um, He describes, he actually describes four errors. I added a fifth. Um, Five uh, errors um, that the Neonomians were making which are really, really easy for Reformed Christians to make. Okay, so these are the errors. These, you know, this is not Ferguson criticizing you know, anybody outside of Presbyterian, Reformed, Westminster Confession of Faith-believing Christians. These are things that are really, really easy for people uh, who are comfortable in that tradition um, to make. So, one, I mentioned um, separating Christ from his benefits. Um, and, and he would say this is what was happening. Christ was being separated from his benefits um, in the preaching of the gospel. Again, there's this kind of this syllogism working. The benefits belong to the elect, therefore, it's only appropriate to offer the benefits to the elect. Right? It's only appropriate to offer salvation, um, newness of life, sanctification, freedom, all the rest. It's only appropriate to offer those benefits to those that you know are in the elect. And how do you know who the elect are? By the forsaking of sin, by repentance. And so it's only appropriate to offer the benefits of Christ to people that you can already see are part of that. And what Ferguson would say and what the Merrow men were saying was, no, this is separating Christ from his benefits. This is uh, making one of those benefits, namely repentance, into a precondition, something that people have to have before they can come to Jesus in the first place. So they would say that when the apostles said that what you have to do to be saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus, that simply means call upon the name of Jesus. That simply means come to Jesus. That simply means ask for help. Um, We're going to see this this morning in the the sermon that we're coming to um, because of this prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, asking for help is the only thing uh, that you have to do to be saved. Um, That means you don't have to forsake your sin. Uh, You don't have to repent first. Repenting is a benefit that flows from uh, coming to Jesus. So the remedy for this, Ferguson uh, argues, is to say not that the benefits of Christ is for you, but instead, to say to people, Christ is for you. Christ's death is for you. The benefits all flow uh, from your part, from your union uh, with, with Christ. One thing that, that is, is really big in this book, um, and this, is, this has been a growing trend um, among Presbyterian and, and Reformed types, is to recapture this doctrine of union with Christ. Um, and to make that in some sense an overarching umbrella, you know, under which to understand um, our salvation, to understand that our justification and our sanctification, our glorification, all of it, um, all flow from our union uh, with, with Christ. Um,
1: yeah. We have already, already Christians and so I guess I don't see how you actually present the gospel to anyone who's not already
0: a That's kind of how Christian. that's kind of how it works. It's a it's a it's a much it's a much more limited closed off understanding of who the appropriate objects of evangelism are. Yeah. 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 Ferguson tells this one anecdote, you know, bringing it to the modern day, where he says like this is, this is still happening in the church. He says, you know, I I was a pastor of a church in which we admitted someone to membership, uh, he, he referred to him as a young man with a past, you know, whatever that meant. And he overheard, you know, two uh, pillars of the church, you know, people who were long-standing members involved in all kinds of ministries, and he overheard them having a discussion, and one said to the other, what's he doing joining the church? Right? And he just said, like, that's, that's the attitude. Right? And a lot of this, by the way, I'll, I mean, um, a lot of this has as much to do with our, Heart attitudes, as opposed to doctrine per se. You know, a lot of this is, um, well, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to that. Um, but he would say, you know, these two pillars of the church that he overheard, their doctrine may have been perfect. You know, they probably understood. You know, I, I, he didn't say that they were elders, but they may have been. They may have been examined on their, on their theology. Um, but their attitude towards this guy, you know, showed that it hadn't penetrated. Yeah. Um, Second error, um, the Neonomians were preaching a conditional offer of the gospel, right? You may know these benefits if you are among the elect instead of you may know Christ, period. Full stop. Everyone. Um, and he points out, and I, I think this is right, um, it is possible that, uh, it, it is, it is, I mean, I, th- I think I have heard this not necessarily at this church, but maybe, maybe when I've been in the pulpit. Um, you know, It is possible that we make uh, conviction of sin, uh, possible that we make you know, how we feel uh, about our sin or how we feel uh, about Christ's sacrifice for us, you know, somehow a precondition, um, rather than understanding that conviction is a tool that God may u- use to bring men to Christ. Um, so we turn it into a condition rather than a fruit. Um, or, uh, and this I don't think I've, I've seen done here, um, but we can teach the order of salvation as though it were some kind of 12-step program, right? You know, so first there has to be repentance, then there's justification, then there's sanctification, as though it were like literally a chronological, you know, this necessarily leads to this, necessarily leads to that, instead of connecting all of it uh, to, uh, to Jesus. Um, you know, this is, this is all what comes from, from offering uh, a, a conditional um, offer of the gospel. Um, probably most important, I think I've got like three slides on this, um, most important was the distortion taking place of the character of God itself, um, our understanding of who God is, uh, of his disposition, uh, toward us, um. The Merriman pointed it at these three verses in particular, or these three passages. So there's John 3, 16 uh, and 17. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Um, they made a lot of Romans 5. Um, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Um, and actually earlier, up in that, in that same passage, uh, it talks about God dying for the ungodly. Right? So three times in the space of about four verses, it refers to those uh, whom God loves as being the ungodly, uh, as being still sinners, as being enemies. Right? These don't sound like people that have made any steps uh, toward forsaking sin. Um, those are the ones that God loves, and then and then Isaiah fifty five, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. So he who has nothing, no precondition whatsoever. Um, they were concerned that the character of God was being um, distorted. Um, they were concerned that you know the implication of this was that. Y- you had to do something to show that you were worth God's time. You had to do something to show that you were a good investment, right? that God could expect a return, right? some sort of repentance, some sort of forsaking of sin. Um, and this implies that God's heart is being twisted around by what we do, or at the very least being twisted around by Jesus. right? Um, I don't know if you remember, those of you who were here last month, Um, At the end of our Reformation series, we did these, uh, the five solas, and when we talked about grace alone, uh, we took a quick look at the Heidelberg Disputation, this thing that Luther wrote, Um, and I emphasized this one. This is my favorite uh, thesis from the Heidelberg Disputation. Luther wrote, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. In other words, we love things. Uh, because something is attractive to us and we are drawn to it. But that's not how God's love works. God's love creates that which he finds pleasing. Um, Luther elaborates on this, therefore sinners are attractive because they are loved, they are not loved because they are attractive. Thus Christ says, for I come not to call the righteous but sinners. This is the love of the cross, born of the cross, which turns in the direction where it does not find good that it may enjoy, but where it may confer good upon the bad and needy person. Um, Those last couple lines, you know, what that's saying is, um, the love of the cross, the love of God, doesn't go out looking for good, doesn't go out looking for something that it finds attractive. It actually confers the attractiveness. It confers the good. It gives the beauty um, to those who are not beautiful. Uh, It gives good to the bad and needy person. It's really interesting. Boston, even, so, so, in Reformed theology, we talk about, we talk about covenant theology, right, and we talk about these two big covenants, right, there's the covenant of works, um, which is do this and live, right, it's, it's if you obey the law, you know, then you will be saved, then I will be your God. Um, And you would say that the covenant that God initially had with Adam was of that form, Right? God says to Adam, obey me about the tree. Um, and if not, then you shall surely die. That's, that's the covenant of works. And then we talk about the covenant of grace. Right? And, and we're always, we're, 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 we're insistent to say, you know, the covenant of grace um, is not a matter of the covenant of works being set aside. It's not that the law is negated. Right? It's no good anymore. Rather, the covenant of grace involves Jesus satisfying the covenant of works on our behalf. Um, And then God imputing, you know, um, accounting that righteousness to us, right? And Thomas Boston actually wasn't so sure about that last part. Um, Or at least he felt it could be very, very misleading. It could be very misleading because it might sound um, as though God's determination to save Adam, God's determination to save sinners is in question until Jesus comes along and satisfies the covenant of works, right? In other words, it portrays God as being the stern uh, and wrathful judge, right, and potentially opposes Jesus to that, you know, has, has Jesus, you know, being the kind, merciful one who comes along and says, wait, wait, I have a second idea, right, let's try this, um, and then persuades God, right? Now, to be clear, that's that's bad covenant theology. Uh, that's bad theology, period. Um, that's bad theology because that sets the father and son uh, in opposition to each other in a way that they just can never be uh, because they're one, right? Because they are one God. Um, there's, this, there's this Latin uh, principle that Augustine wrote, um, which means that the works of the Trinity um, towards creation – the external works of the, of the Trinity is what that literally means. So the external, the, the works of the Trinity uh, toward people are indivisible. You can never divide Father from Son from Spirit um, in how they act uh, towards, towards creation. And so you can never have this sense um, that, uh, that the Father has to be persuaded, you know, that his opinion has to be changed, that, it, that, that, that somehow Jesus has to cajole him um, into being, into being merciful. Um, Packer puts this really well. He says, "The love of the Father and the Son with the Holy Spirit to lost sinners is shared, unanimous love. The tritheistic fantasy of a loving Son placating an unloving Father and commandeering an apathetic Holy Spirit in order to save us is a distressing nonsense." Um, what has to be remembered? I mean, going back just to, to John three sixteen, right? God so loved the world. That he sent his son, right this was, this was, this was no less the father 's idea than the son 's idea. Um, it was the love of the Father uh, that sent Jesus uh, into the world, so that 's that's, that's, that's probably the biggest uh, error uh, that this that this theology was making. Um, two others um, Again, you know, I think this is, this is as much about attitude as it is about doctrine. This is about how we feel, um, mostly how we feel about God, mostly how we relate to him, but it plays out in how we relate to each other as well. Um, and so these other two errors have to do with uh, our attitude towards one another uh, as Christians, and then the fifth one is about, is about ministers in particular. Um, you know, but if, if, our, if our understanding of grace is conditional— um, you know, if, if we think uh, that salvation is only offered uh, to those who show some sign of repentance, um, then that's going to put limits on our love for one another. It's going to put limits on our hospitality. Um, it's going to put limits on our forgiveness of one another, our ability to be reconciled to each other. Um, did you guys see that movie Silence. Not an easy movie to watch, um, but there's this character uh, in in Silence, um, who so it, it it takes place in seventeenth I think century Japan, um, when Japan had shut itself off uh, from the world largely, but certainly to Christian missionaries uh, and were persecuting Christians um, in in brutal ways, um, and there's this one character um, who keeps betraying. Uh, both the missionaries and his uh, Christian relatives um, in Japan. Um, he betrays them, and he comes back and asks for forgiveness. And then he betrays them again, and he comes back and asks for forgiveness. And he keeps doing this. And by the fourth or fifth time, you're thinking, this is just too much. It, 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 this is getting ridiculous. Like, you're angry at this character. Um, I think that's the way our hearts mostly are. And we need to understand that's not the way God's heart is. We need to understand that there are no limits uh, to his his forgiveness. And if we don't understand that about God's heart, then we'll have no chance of having hearts that are able able to forgive that way ourselves. Um, It's going to put limits on our evangelism, right? It's going to put limits on, you know, we're going to be thinking, is it really worth sharing the gospel uh, with this particular friend, this particular coworker, this relative? Uh, in whom I've just never seen any sign whatsoever of a recognition that they need help of any kind. Um, it's going to limit us in that way. Um, finally, Ferguson turns. He's um, in some ways writing and speaking. This derived from lectures he gave uh, to pastors. And so the last thing that he points out is is for pastors. Um, and so this is for me. Uh, this is for Rick. This is for the elders of the church, uh, is to know uh, that this conditional understanding of grace um, produces pastors who can only offer grace conditionally who can only love their people conditionally um, who can only preach the love of God uh, conditionally and who in their hearts um, start to look like Jonah sitting under that tree um, angry that God would dare to forgive people uh, who have so little appreciation uh, for their work uh, we become you know, theologically orthodox elder brothers uh, from, the, from, the, from the prodigal son. So let me just wrap this up um, and then see if there are, are any questions. Um, you know, it is interesting to note that both antinomianism, antinomianism rejects the law altogether, just says the law has nothing to do with Christians. Uh, we don't have to pay attention to it. Neonomianism, interestingly enough, was also rejecting the Old Testament law you know, it, it, it said that the Ten Commandments had been replaced by faith and repentance. It didn't really have a place for the actual Ten Commandments. It didn't have a place for the actual law of God. So neo-nomian, Neonomians would have had just as much of a difficult time with the question that we started with, right? How do we delight in the law? How do we read Psalm 119 and see this psalmist delighting in the law? And he means the Ten Commandments. How is it that you find those to be a delight and a good gift uh, of wisdom for your life? Um, Everybody involved in this, or sorry, antinomians and neonomians uh, would have had um, a hard hard time with that question. But more importantly, um, both antinomianism and all forms of legalism um, misunderstand the law in the same way. Um, they misunderstand it as a, as a burden. Um, and this, this is the really important thing. We, we tend to think of antinomianism and legalism as being two opposite points on a spectrum, right? And we know what to do with spectrums, right? With, with, with spectrums, it's always bad to be on one extreme or the other, right? So uh, on the political spectrum, you know, you don't want to be crazy right wing. You don't want to be crazy left wing, right? You want to find that happy medium somewhere in between, Right, so if you think of antinomianism and legalism as a spectrum, then you're naturally gonna tend to say, okay, where's the happy medium, right? And on the other hand, if you encounter uh, yourself or somebody else being legalistic, you're gonna think, okay, I know what you need. You need a little dose of antinomianism. You need to calm down about that whole law thing, right, and move in this direction. And if you see somebody rejecting the law altogether, you need to say, hang on, you know, the law has its, has its, has its benefits, right? Let's get a little more legalism in there to find that, that happy medium, right? This is a big mistake, and it's a big mistake because it misses the fact that antinomianism and legalism, where it really counts, where it really matters, are actually in agreement. They're both misconceiving of what the law is. They're both thinking of the law as a burden, right? The legalist is going to grit his teeth and bear that burden, right, while the antinomian, is an antinomian is going to reject it, cast it aside. But neither of them understands the law as a delight. Neither of them un- understands it as a gift. So they both misconceive of what the law is, and they both misconceive um, of God's character. And so this is why what Ferguson is going is to argue uh, throughout this book, um, is that the remedy for both of these things um, is simply the gospel. Uh, it is simply Christ. It is simply to apprehend the love of the Father for you in Christ. Um, and that's what we'll unpack for the next three weeks. Um, we have a couple minutes here. Are there any questions that I can answer? Yeah, Bob?
2: Historically, do you know how the controversy settled
0: out? Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention this. This is, this is actually kind of funny. Um, so the Church of Scotland never rescinded that um, condemnation of the marrow of modern divinity. It's still on the books. Um, so I heard Ferguson give a lecture. Like I said, this, this book came from lectures that he that he gave, and, and I, I was able to get a recording of that. Um, and it was very funny. He said, so I'm a minister in the Church of Scotland, and so technically I can't recommend that you read this book. In fact, I'm supposed to warn you against it. Uh, but we have made available, and we're handing out right now Thomas Boston's notes on the mayor of modern divinity, and I do recommend that you read those. Um, but yeah, uh, the Church of Scotland never, never, never moved away from that. The other, as I mentioned, the other way that it played out, this is um, how these things usually happen in, in Presbyterian polity, was that the mayoral men and others ended up forming a different denomination. Uh, it was called the Associate Presbytery, and then I don't know where things went from there. Uh, it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Leonard. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. We can't we can't uh, bracket that delight in the law to the Old Testament, as though it it had nothing to do with us. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point.
2: Yeah. Uh, One other comment, Uh, you know, the issue that was brought up toward the end that there was some kind of controversy between the father and the son, Uh, I think is solved largely with with a thoroughgoing appreciation of. Doctor, yeah. which uh, always needs to be encouraged, uh, which, again, largely is the story over the years, but I think we need to really push the Trinity uh,
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Greg Parker's been saying he wants to teach a class in the Trinity for a while. I'm trying to work that into our schedule. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, let me pray for us. Father in Heaven, um, we're thankful for... Uh, theological controversies um, they're not always fun to go through um, they can certainly show um, the ugliness uh, that lies in our hearts and yet amazingly um, as with so much else about us that is flawed uh, and shot through with sin you use them uh, you use them to bring clarity uh, you use them to uh, protect the gospel Father we, we pray uh, above all Uh, Even now as we go to worship, we pray for a deeper understanding and appreciation uh, of the love uh, that you have for us uh, in your Son. Uh, And Spirit, we pray that you would work that deep uh, into our hearts uh, this morning as we hear your word uh, read uh, and preached and sing your praises. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we'll be right back here in 15 minutes for worship.